Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Today we're talking about the mysterious canola seedling disease complex. What is it? What to look for? Risk factors? And how to manage it? With me are... Hi, my name is Mark Palmonte and I am a professor of biological sciences at the University of Manitoba. Hi, I'm Chris Anderson. I work with Bayer Crop Science and I am an agronomic solutions manager for seed growth, which is just a fancy way of saying that I run the seed treatment research. Hi, I'm Autumn Barnes. I'm an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. I'm the stand establishment lead as well. The seedling disease complex of canola includes three pathogen groups, Pythium species, Fusarium species, and Rhizoctonia solani. Mark Belmonte leads off explaining why they get lumped together as a complex. We, we do like to call them the three amigos. Uh, we know that one of these uh, pathogens can cause disease on its own, but we also know that it can also cause tremendous disease if they're acting with each other. We do know that they all three have devastating impacts on uh, the way that the crop can develop. Krista, can you introduce the three amigos to us? Let's start with Pythium, because I think you told me earlier that it, it's the one that will probably infect earliest. So tell me about Pythium. Yeah, so Pythium, it's, it's a new mycete. It really likes wet conditions, um, saturated soils. And you're right, it, it is the one that will often get there first um, and actually cause seed rot um, and some, some pretty devastating uh, damping off of the really small seedlings. And it, it's, uh, it likes cool, wet conditions. Um, and that's the, the best way to describe it. It gets in there early um, and reduces stand numbers. Uh, you don't necessarily see a lot of symptomology in canola past that early, early phase. All right, now Fusarium. So Fusarium is, that one's a tougher one. Um, there are so many different species involved and they all kind of have their niche that they prefer. So you get something like Fusarium avenaceum kind of likes it uh, a little bit wetter and cooler, but not as wet as the Pythiums. And um, then you get something like Fusarium solanae, which survives the drier, warmer conditions. And so depending on your, your uh, soil environment at the time can really change which organism or which of the fusariums are infecting. Um, but they cause some pretty generic um, symptomology, necrosis, some lesions. Um, and, and they can come in pretty much any time during the growing season, which is quite a bit different from what we see with the pythiums. All right, Rhizoctonia solani. Ah, uh, Rhizoc. It's a little dear to my heart just because it was one of the first pathogens I ever worked with. Um, Rhizoctonia is a basidial mycete, and um, actually I didn't mention the fusariums are an ascomycete, so they're all very differently uh, branching off the evolutionary tree at different points. But Rhizoctonia, it's a true soil-borne disease. Um, it doesn't even sporulate. It's just fungal hyphae that once it comes into contact with the, the seedlings, it, it just adheres and starts to infect. Um, it can infect any time during the growing season. There's two main, um, I'll call them subgroups, AG 2.1 is what we call it in the, the pathology world, or an AG4, um, and I won't get into why we call them that, but the AG 2.1, that's the one that's most devastating on canola, and it likes the cooler, moist conditions. Um, AG4 is a little bit more active once things start to warm up, but these are the ones that are often causing your wire stemming and your brown girdling root rot uh, later in the season. When I think of the canola seedling disease complex, it's that wire stem that often 
it comes to mind and maybe that's just because it's the really the most obvious but is it you know when you think of all of these symptoms that we might see is it the one that is perhaps the easiest to see and therefore captures the most attention yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. It is the most obvious one, um, easiest to, to look at and know what you're looking at. Um, and it's, it's primarily the rhizoctonia that get into the tissues, and rhizoctonia really doesn't have a lot of finesse. Once it gets into the tissues, it just sort of bulldozes its way um, through the tissues, collapsing cell walls, and that's where that wire coming comes from. It's the collapsing of the tissues due to the presence of the pathogen. Uh, and you don't get that with the pythiums, and probably not as much with the caesariums. Um, they just have they have different ways of interacting with the plant versus the rhizoctonia. Autumn, when you have conversations with farmers and agronomists about the seedling disease complex and and stand establishment issues, what what kind of symptoms do you hear about most of the time? Yeah, so in in my territory, I've seen more issues with seedling disease as a result of uh, maybe some suboptimal management, whether it's uh, tighter rotation, uh, maybe deep seeding. And then confounding factors, I think the worst field that I've seen in my territory was a field um, that had some group two carryover um, back a couple of years ago when it was dry, I think it was 2018. And um, it was a mess of group two carryover and then also a lot of brown girdling root rot and uh, everything. I think the plants were growing slowly. It was dry and cold um, and the the pathogen looked like it was just able to really capitalize on that. And I think probably you know walking through the field um maybe 10 to 20 percent of the plants were affected by brown girdling root rot in addition to um them being really stunted by by the drought and the group to carry over so in my experience it generally has happened as a result of something else or in combination uh, with something else but i know in in parts of the of of um, the prairies that tend to be a little bit wetter and colder might be a little bit more common. All right, Autumn, let's stick with you and then we'll go around with this next question. And you touched on it, but what if if farmers are trying to scout and get to the bottom of an issue that is related to seedling disease complex, what should they be looking for? Yeah, I think in general, just getting out and scouting for emergence is really important and then digging into why plants aren't there or why they're looking unhealthy when they are there. So instead of kind of walking by and taking a look and seeing there's, you know, it, it looks okay or it's a decent amount of, of plants, uh, figure out um, how many seeds you put in the ground uh, in a given area and then how many uh, how many emerge. And if you're seeing less than you like, dig up and, and find out why. So Rhizoctonia is a really easy one to pick on because uh, you'll see that wire stemming that Krista mentioned where um, the tissue sort of collapses and it looks brown and kind of thin like a wire. It's it's not that nice, robust um, uh, tissue that it should be like white, white firm tissue. So 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 definitely looking at any abnormalities with roots are, that are there. Um, and then, you know, if if seeds aren't coming up, then looking at those, um, looking at seeds, seeing if they're kind of squishy. And and then later on, um, the brown girdling root rot is is something that can be a little bit more obvious if you get there in time. But um, in my territory, we get pretty windy. So if if that root is getting girdled and pinched off, uh, and then you get a wind, uh, if you're not there to see the plant as it's getting pinched off, uh, it's pretty hard to find those little masses of roots after the above ground growth is gone. So um, 
I kind of tend to see like a bit of a bluish. I know some people say purplish, but if you're walking through the field and you see some little seedlings that are, yeah, like I said, I think it's a little bit more bluish and a little wilty. Um, you can dig them up with a shovel and really examine those roots. And uh, oftentimes there'll be something that's constricting the root or perhaps, you know, a cutworm or something that's taken some bites. Um, but in the case of, of root rots, you can definitely uh, see some above ground symptoms at, at times. Mark, tell me about the the seed and, and probably Pythium, but whatever. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter which one of the three it is, but how do you tell if a seed is rotten versus sound? Is it is it basically just squishing your hands or what does that what would those symptoms look like? One of the best ways to figure out whether your seed uh, might be compromised by Pythium is First of all, you're going to have to dig it out of the ground because all three of these uh, pathogens are considered to be soil-borne, which means that the pathogen really likes to live in cool, moist, uh, or damp soils. And so as soon as Epithium figures out that there is food nearby and that food is going to come in the form of that seed, is that the uh, fungal hyphae are going to start to penetrate into that seed. The seed naturally has a really tough exterior seed coat that helps to protect the seed, especially overwintering and in terms of storage. But as soon as the uh, fungal hyphae can interact with that seed, it's pretty much game over under the right conditions. And so the fungus has a lot of uh, inherent mechanisms to, to break down that really tough seed coat, especially if the seed has already started to break. Uh, so as soon as the seed touches some moisture, gets into that really fertile soil, it's gonna want to germinate uh, and extend that root down to start for mining for, for nutrition as well as for water as quick as possible. And then that's also when the, the seed is at its most vulnerable. And so uh, really, if the conditions are right, the seed doesn't stand much of a chance. Krista, you're on the industry side of things and, and the seed treatments. I mean, for the most part, the seed treatments work. What, what might be a situation when the, the seed treatment, you know, doesn't give the, the protection that, that we've come to expect of it? I'll say under good conditions, where a farmer's been following a good rotation, um, we've got, I'll say, fairly normal moisture conditions. The seed treatments are going to be are are quite effective um, versus all three of those, the three amigos. Um, where you might see them failing is under extremely tight rotations, where the inoculum load, like just the sheer number of the pathogens, are so great. Um, and they persist for so long and just continue to attack the plants um, over time. I mean, the, the seed treatments are only designed to last for a few weeks. Their, their whole purpose is to provide that protection of the seed while it imbibes and, and breaks its seed coat um, until it, it um, has emerged and starts to photosynthesize and develop its defense mechanisms. It's, it's that window in between where it's really vulnerable because it can't well defend itself. Um, so if you have a case where there's just so much inoculum, there, at some point the fungicides will wear off and those organisms can move in. Um, high moisture conditions. Uh, most pathogens like higher moisture and if you have consistent moisture 
early on in the season. Um, and as Autumn mentioned, uh, slow growing conditions. So cold conditions is, is a good one. Um, where it just slows down everything in the plants and, and it just can't get into that photosynthesis um, phase where it can develop its defense mechanism. The longer it sits in that ground and the longer it takes for it to get out, the more likely that pathogens cannot attack it and there's more opportunity for them to do that. Um, deep seeding, as Autumn mentioned as well, again, it's taking that much longer for that, that seedling to get out of the ground um, and develop its defense mechanism. So at some point, some of that can wear off. Um, I mean, if you think back to a few years ago, what was that, 2014, 2015, we had those really high moisture years and you just, it, it was perfect for fungi. Um, and they just, in some cases, were overwhelming. Um, and you can see this in areas in, in fields if you're, when you're scouting. If you look for low-lying areas where water tends to collect, if you go look in those areas, guaranteed those pathogens are going to be active there um, even a little bit later in the season. And, and you, can, you can go and investigate that yourself, um, maybe pull out some plants from a healthy part of the field and then compare the root systems to what's happening right on the edges of those wet areas. Um, that'll kind of give you an idea of what happens when you have consistent high moisture, short rotation and high moisture conditions combined. Um, they can overwhelm the seed treatments. Is it possible to, and, and where do you even want to, take a sample and send it in for analysis to see whether that it is in fact these seedling diseases. Yeah, I think there's there's opportunities within all of the, the three period provinces. They all have diagnostic labs that you can submit samples to. Um, I think when you want to do that is is when you're not sure if I, I mean if it's a nutritional issue, which you can send soil samples away, um, take some samples of the roots, um, and and especially when you're running those tight rotations. Just getting confirmation of what organisms are in there. You can you can send them to the diagnostic labs in the three provinces. Um, is it worth doing it from from the three amigos perspective? I'm not sure how much value there is to be truthful in knowing because in uh, certainly from what I've seen, those three will be present in all field soils. Um, it's just the distribution that might be different depending on where you are in the field, what the environmental conditions were that that spring. And the, within a field, they can change so much from one year to another, influenced by your rotation, environment. Um, so maybe it, it's just sort of a confirmation to eliminate it if there's something else going on in the field. But if you're just looking at the seedling diseases, there might be limited value in actually getting them diagnosed. But sometimes um, you just want the information and confirmation that that's what you're dealing with. And, and that's just peace of mind. And so, um, I mean, I, I plate them all the time and it's a little gratifying sometimes just to have it grow and say, yeah, I was right. That was exactly what it was. So, yeah. so the, I think it's up to the, to the grower. The next thing I want to ask, and, and maybe I'll go, let Mark tackle this one, but my sense is that, uh, or in conversations with you, Krista, and, and others, is that a lot of these species are, I don't know whether you could say they're generalists, but they're not exclusively canola diseases. And so on the theme of what can farmers do about these, um, you mentioned rotation, Krista, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw it a mark on this. Um, are, are these for the most part generalists? And, and in your mind then, given that, what benefit is there of rotation? 
So all three of, of these pathogens have what's called a necrotrophic stage. And so that necrotrophic stage means that the fungus is going to feed off of dead or dying tissue. So one of the ways that all three of these fungi can start to impact either the seed, like we're looking with Pythium, or the early root structure, like we see with Rhizoctonias, as well as a Fusariums, is that it has to start to, the all three fungi have to start to release different types of enzymes, different types of molecules that will start to evade the plant defense response. And so as soon as the fungi can evade and get around that immunity that would be found within the plant, it is perfect conditions to start to break down that tissue. And so that's where we're gonna start seeing mushy or brown seeds, or that's where we're gonna start seeing the wiring occurring because all three of these pathogens are actively breaking down that tissue and they're feeding off of all of the nutrients that the canola seedling would naturally be producing. And uh, like was suggested earlier, these fungi are soil-borne. They're found in a number of different uh, areas all across uh, Western Canada and around the world, and they're not specific to canola. They're not specific to canola for a reason. Evolutionarily speaking, they really need to be able to find sources of food in order to be successful. And all three of these pathogens have been incredibly successful because they can find ways to evade defense, whether we're looking at canola, like Brassicanapis, or whether we're looking at peas or lentils or other types of crops that would be found uh, across the country. So while we're primarily focusing our discussion today on canola, they are huge problems uh, for other crops that would be found in those types of rotations. So getting back to your question on whether uh, rotations can help to uh, mitigate or alleviate some of that fungal pressure, it's definitely true, um, especially for growing peas or lentils, for example, uh, after canola or before canola. But uh, there's definitely ways that we can start to uh, mitigate this type of disease pressure through longer types of rotations with plants that might not be as susceptible uh, to the three amigos. Such as, have you got a couple? Yeah, so anytime you can put in some grasses, uh, any, like cereals, that's going to also help. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you have really good uh, nutrition that's found within the soil. You also want to be on the ground scouting out your fields to have a better idea for the history of what you might expect within uh, your cropping rotation and also working with uh, specialists at, uh, uh, at various levels or uh, different types of agronomists that can also help in better understanding what types of rotations have worked in the past with others in your area. And of course, using a really good uh, high quality seed and seed treatment. So just, just on the cereals as, as a possible break, when I think of fusarium, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, is wheat. Um, Fusarium graminearum, and I think to some extent Avanasium, but 
uh, so are those like are the ones that would would attack wheat the same ones that would attack are these completely different subspecies? Yep. So yeah, exactly. So not always. So you're going to get different types of species or even different types of races, which goes even more uh, deeper into the species level and differences within these pathogens that can affect different crops at different stages of the crop life cycle. So different types of pathogens are going to be more opportunistic and ready to interact with the early uh, seedling and other pathogens are going to be more opportunistic or ready to interact with the plant, let's say a little bit later on in the growing season when it's starting to flower. Okay, Autumn, I'm gonna to go to you, uh, just on, on management or, or what, if, if farmers find that they've got uh, more seedling diseases in their canola than they think they should, what what can they do about it? I think the easy thing to pick on is rotation. Um, and and so just lengthening out that rotation, which will give you benefits from from a seedling disease management perspective, but also you know other diseases and other pests that that affect canola and could benefit from a little extra time between canola crops. Um, looking at seeding depth is important. Um, and often when we see seeding depth issues, it's kind of by accident. Uh, so, so when we're seeding, making sure that we're checking our depth really off, uh, really regularly, checking placement, um, you know, and looking at a few rows next to each other, which we've talked about a little bit this spring, um, just to check and see if, you know, those first rows that are that are getting planted are getting covered over with more dirt and maybe getting uh, the seed down a little deeper than you'd like. So, so there's some cultural practices uh, around rotation and, and seeding. Um, you could also look at um, your your seeding date. So if you're seeding when it's a little colder or wetter and you can change that without sacrificing, you know, any other agronomic issues, that's one thing. I know, you know, specifically in the piece this year in some areas in the prairies, we've had uh, excessively wet, cool conditions. And um, in some years, it's, there's not really as much we can do about that. We just have to kind of seed when we can and, and make the best decisions we can in that season. Um, so really kind of making an effort to seed in optimum conditions, making a point of checking placement and depth really regularly and lengthening out a rotation if you can. Krista, anything you'd add on what can farmers do about these seedling diseases? Yeah, you know what? Honestly, crop rotation is the most powerful tool they have available to them. Um, and I can't say that often enough. And and having a really diverse rotation is, is really important. Um, I mean, pythiums will infect all crops at some level. Um, the Rhizoctonias, the one advantage there is that cereals in Western Canada are not affected by the AG groups that are, are common in canola and pulses. So that's a nice break there. And, and quite frankly, in, in my opinion, Rhizoctonia is probably the biggest problem in the canola. When it comes to the Fusarium, there's such a high degree of variability. The species and even the individuals within the species that are probably highly aggressive on, let's say, the cereals or the pulses might not be as aggressive on canola and vice versa. So although the fusarian species, again, they will infect across most of the crops that we grow. Um, it, it, think of it as from a sports analogy, you're throwing a different defense at this um, every time you plant a different crop. And so 
they're, they're not going to be able to attack as aggressively as if you were allowed, allowing a single individual population that was con or, or uh, really strong and aggressive on that crop. Um, by changing the crop, you, you switch up which of the individuals in that population have an opportunity to, to infect and, and increase. So yeah, honestly, crop rotation is probably, although it's not dramatic, um, in the reduction of the inoculum, like you get when you have a break from canola for management of blackleg, where after that two or three years, you can see a significant decrease in the non-inoculum load. You don't see that with the soil-borne pathogens, but it is helping to manage, and it keeps it at a level where the seed treatments will remain effective. Um, so yeah, I think that would be the, big, the biggest thing there. That ends kind of the agronomy side of things. So if we don't get it into anything else, that's okay. We've kind of taken care of the, the key messages from, from my perspective. But what do you find exciting about these? This, I mean, there's so many pathogens going on here, even within this these three amigos. But why are they interesting to you? One of the things when you think about uh, soil-borne pathogens is that they're underground. And so we don't oftentimes... Uh, see them as being as important as some of the pathogens that might impact the crop a little bit later on in the growing season, such as the black legs as well as the sclerotinias. And when we think about soil-borne pathogens as well as microbes, we can also think about how they're interacting with each other within the soil and under different types of crop rotations. So one of the things that we're really interested in is trying to better understand the relationship between the pythiums, the fusariums, as well as the rhizox with other microbes that are found within the soil. And when we take a look at all of the microbes or describe all of the microbes and microorganisms that are found within the soil, it's called the microbiome. And so just like uh, animals have microbiomes within their gut. Soils also have microbiomes. And these microbiomes can, for example, when the conditions are right, start to go into an imbalance where all of a sudden you get more prevalence of more disease-causing types of microbes, which can then impact the crop. So what we're interested in is not only better understanding how the entire microbial community structure might interact with the plant, but also try to sequence all of these microbes, taking a what's called a metagenomics approach, in order to find new and innovative and sustainable ways uh, to protecting some of Canada's most important crops using uh, some of the biologicals or microbes that are naturally found within the soil. So far, uh, the jury is still out uh, in terms of finding some of the magic bullets. But what we do see is that under different types of disease conditions, that the plant will select for different types of microbes that can protect it against some of the disease-causing pathogens. And so right now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to characterize some of those microbes to see if they might offer some sort of clues into better understanding the relationships between these microbes as they're interacting with the root below ground at different types or different times of the growing season. Krista, what about you? What, what makes you excited about these, these diseases, if, if that's the word, excited? 
I'm a pathologist. I get excited about diseases. <laughs> um, I, I will say, actually, the, what Mark was describing, I was doing a little happy clap. Um, I, I think that's fascinating as well, the microbiome and, and all of the different organisms that are also present. I, you know, they're in the soil, out of sight, out of mind. A lot of people don't think about them, but there is so much potential for exactly what Mark was describing. And, and uh, some days I wonder if we could just figure out which combination of the organisms within that microbiome, um, could you prescribe it then to a field to, to, to counter some of the, the pathogens, um, especially if in, in areas where you've had a bit of a buildup of pathogens, uh, that would be great. Do you think that will be like the next frontier in, in pest management? I think it could be part of it, especially with the soils. Um, it's, it, I, I think that's going to be part of it. Soil health, I mean, I mean, the microbiome and what's there is all part of the broader soil health topic. And I think that will be part of it. I, I just, we don't understand enough about it and the organisms there and how they interact, how to best harness those those populations and i think using ones that are are local i'll say are probably going to be critical because they're adapted to our environment so identifying something that works down in brazil and then trying to import it here and get it to work probably not going to happen but so i think it's going to be really important that we have local solutions i think that's going to play a real role and i I can expand on that briefly in terms of some of the technology that we are able to use now that simply wasn't available even uh two or three years ago so in order to profile the all of the microbes that are found below ground within the soil or associated with the, the canola root, what we have to do is we have to be able to sequence uh, all of those different microbes. And so now we actually use DNA sequencers that are no bigger than the size of a USB stick we can load up the DNA that we would extract from that soil and then sequence that DNA in real time just by plugging in that small little chip into the side of, into the side of a computer or a laptop. So what we're able to do now is we're able to take a real-time diagnostic of what's happening within either uh, a grower's field or something that we might have developed in, in the lab and be able to tell the investigator, the researcher, or the specialist exactly what's going on uh, within a matter of hours or days. And so we've really come a long way when it comes to this type of technology. But one of the bottlenecks is, as Krista suggested, is how do you process all of that data and how do you make a recommendation from that data that the grower uh, can actually use uh, in their operation? And is this just a matter of the the waiting on the computing power? Like, do you foresee a, a time, maybe in a decade, where you could have this a re, almost a real time analysis out there in the field, giving you a readout of what what pathogens are present? Yeah, I, I think we're talking more in line uh, in line of years rather than decades. So, I think this is coming a lot quicker uh, than we think, and. And it's it's mind-boggling how quickly this technology is is really advancing our our knowledge of of either uh, plant pathogens or or other microbes or DNA sequences that that researchers and specialists and uh, growers are interested in. Autumn, do you have a question for Krista or Mark? I'll, I'll, maybe that would be the way to to wrap up here, just to make sure that we 
we close the circle. Autumn, do you have something you'd like to, to get out of the conversation that we haven't touched on yet? You know, I was reviewing our uh, notes from when we had Krista speak to our team, and I was trying to think of something that she hadn't addressed in there. And um, I've just really enjoyed this conversation, and it's always nice listening to uh, really intelligent people discuss something that's so intricate and, and delicate. And um, the first time I saw uh, a root rot in the field, it was I think it was my first year working with um, with canola, and there were some mature canola plants that were just standing trees that were black in the field and and so the grower had no idea what was going on and we ended up kind of figuring it out that they had died from a root rot and then been um, colonized by uh, some other type of uh, fungus in the field and so I guess the thing that's interesting to me is um, you know and that I'm I'm looking forward to learning more about is sort of how they evolve over time in a field sorry evolve is probably the wrong term but how how the the their expression changes over time in a field. And then um, something that I'm really looking forward to learning more about is that activity in the soil, how they interact uh, with each other and with other life underground. So um, as far as questions you guys haven't addressed, I can't, I can't think of one. I think it's all been really, really interesting and uh, something I'm looking forward to reading more about and learning more about. I was just going to say, one of the other things that I find fascinating, and it's kind of along the line of the, the microbiome, um, but a little bit more targeted is when you do get those instances where someone's maybe been practicing a, a, some, some poor agronomy, shortened the rotation um, quite badly, had canola on canola, or, or um, they, the, the weather has been conducive to disease development. Uh, what I see when I do get samples from these, I'll say, problematic fields is it's not just the three amigos that are there. There are also all of these, I'll call them secondary pathogens, which have been identified, acknowledged that they can infect the canolas or oilseed rates. Um, but they're not really considered much of a threat because they're not present in large, um, populations aren't very populous. Um, they occur very rarely. And I'm thinking along the lines of things like the Alpidium brassicae, Myrotisium um, roridum, um, and then there's a number of organisms that we don't even really talk about at all. Um, Acrimonium, and I forget, it's been renamed. Uh, I think it's the Plectosphorella group. Um, those organisms start to show up in much greater numbers in these fields where there's been uh, poor rotational practices or just environment conducive to really heavy root rots. And understanding how what role those play in because whereas in a typical field, I'll call it, um, you don't see them at all, or very rarely in those problematic fields, all of a sudden they become much more populous. And what are they doing to contribute to the issues that we're seeing with the plants themselves? Were they just along for the ride? Or are they actually now, like what we see in peas with the Phanomyces, where the peas and the fusarium tag team and create bigger, uh, more severe damage than if they were there alone. Do these secondary organisms come in and, and cause even greater damage? Um, I've seen some really interesting things uh, over the last few years, and a lot of them I can't explain, but I'm just, I just find it fascinating. Um, and my team can tell you my happy place is when I'm at that microscope doing identifications of fungi coming off of some of our samples. It's just uh, yeah, I'd like to partner with Mark and have him do do some analysis on some of the root samples I've had come through my lab to tell me what these things are, because there's a lot of things coming out of them and I don't have a clue what it is. 
Um, and I've been working in pathology for 20 years. So yeah, <laughs> there's lots still to learn. Yeah. And that was a lot of Latin you threw at us there. So I don't know how we could follow it, but I guess the, the key is that um, we can we can maybe select for things that we don't expect. I, can I just ask one quick Latin question? I don't know Latin that well, but Rhizoctonia solani, and then there's a Fusarium solani. What does solani mean? Potato. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it was originally identified um, on potato. And so that's where that that latin name a lot of the latin names it, it either identifies a structure of the fungus or where it came from um or the host and so that's where you hear a lot of the um former specialist pizai means it's a specialist on peas so the the solana was originally identified on potatoes but as you know it's it's uh, there are different groups and in fact a lot of different hosts it's just um who'd identified it first and named it really okay mark let's let's wrap up with you do you with with all this and the microbiome and the under the it's like exploring the bottom of the sea or something like that. Do you feel like an explorer? Yeah, every day, and uh, I think that's why I got into uh, the research area and why I'm a professor here at the University of Manitoba is because it does uh, give me that opportunity to explore and especially being able to interact with industry like uh interact with great people like krista as well as interacting with the canola council it really does tie everyone together to be able to explore ask a lot of questions and really better understand how plants are going to be interacting with their environment and that's something that everybody really uh, should be concerned about and really try to better understand so that we do have a beautiful environment to look forward to that can help us to produce uh, really wonderful food for years to come. I think right now we're, we're, we're in an age of discovery. Uh, we're learning more than we ever have before in the past. And with that, I think comes a lot of responsibility uh, in order to make that information publicly available, in order to make that information available to, to growers, to other researchers, to other scientists to be able to make sure that we can use that uh, information as well as those discoveries through exploration uh, so that we can use them in order to make really great and well-informed decisions uh, to improve not only the soil in the case of the uh, seedling rot diseases, but also the overall uh, agronomic practices uh, that Canadians are so good at. Uh, right here across Western Canada. I actually, I was kind of thinking about this one question that I really didn't want to ask because I think I kind of know the answer, but, um, you know, we always advise growers to, to use responsible crop rotations. And we know a lot about agronomy and the practices that, uh, that growers can use and on their farms to prevent and mitigate these diseases and, and in general, just a lot of agronomic issues. But I think we always get the question when we talk about these or cultural practices of rotation um, or, or other agronomic practices, we always get this question about like, what's coming down the pipeline that I can that I can use? Not necessarily a silver bullet, but what can fix this problem for me if I have it? And so I guess sort of a question, sort of a comment that no matter 
how how important it is to use rotations and to you know make sure you're you're seeding in as optimum conditions as you can. Um, is there going to be anything coming down the pipeline that's a silver bullet, or is it always going to be you know this more holistic approach of um, you know managing each field in a in a responsible way or as best as you can? You know what? I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet that'll solve all of the issues when it comes to managing um, root rots and soil-borne diseases. And it's partly because you're dealing with such a diverse um, taxonomic organisms. Um, there, And it's, it's one of the reasons why the seed treatments, when you compare them to foliar fungicides, are so much more complex. They're multi-fungicide plus insecticide all mixed in one, and they're you know, the, the complexities to deal with soil-borne pathogens are actually greater than with, with the foliars. So will there be a silver bullet that'll solve all the problems? Probably not. Will there be individual improvements that'll target specific areas of the issues? Probably, but they're not going to come fast and furious. Um, the improvements will probably be gradual in nature. Um, and I, I think a holistic approach is probably in the long term going to be the most productive and best option. I have always stated over and over, a diverse crop rotation is the best way to manage all of your pest problems, whether it be weed management, insect management, disease management. There is no more powerful tool available to growers than that. All of the other tools that we supply to them are supplemental and should be temporary um, fixes for problems that they should be dealing with from a more long-term perspective. But that doesn't mean we can't improve the tools that we're using right now um, and, and make them more effective and sustainable um, for long-term use, whether that be through breeding, soil health, um, chemistries, biologics, everything. All of them have a weak point at some point. Um, and, and so it will always be an integrated system trying to find the best, the best solution. And it, and it won't be a one-size-fits-all. What works um, for one grower uh, you know, in, in northern Alberta may not work for another grower in southern Manitoba. Um, and that's just the reality. So to, to keep the tools diverse as well will be important. We could go on, but let's, let's wrap on that. Thanks, Krista. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Autumn. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You can find more information on the seedling disease complex in the diseases section of the Canola Encyclopedia at canolaencyclopedia.ca. For more canola agronomy tips, visit canolawatch.org. Canola Watch is a research-based agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada in cooperation with the Provincial Canola Grower Associations, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.